Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. Let me uh, begin this series on becoming a people after God's own heart. To kind of give you some background on this topic and why we're looking at David, King David, because in the scriptures, God tells Samuel the prophet, once he's displeased with King Saul and is going to remove Saul from the throne of Israel, he tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and anoint one of his sons. And he says, a man after my own heart as king of Israel. Now, the first time I read that in scripture, and I got to go back a number of years, I started reading scripture in, uh, I think, 1973. And as I read scripture, I spent my first years, probably two or three years in the New Testament, seeking the mind of God in the New Testament and getting fed by his word and encountering God through the words and actions of Jesus Christ. And it was after that that I began diving into the Old Testament and I began to find the richness of the Old Testament, how everything in the Old Testament is geared to fulfillment in the New Testament. And I don't know how many times I've read the Bible through, but this passage from Samuel did not strike me at all until probably 18 years ago. So 73, and you you could figure out the math. I was into the scripture a pretty good while before this passage even struck me as something I needed to meditate on. And when I did, it occurred to me that David at the time was a youth. He was a teenager. And of all the holy men and holy women in Scripture, only David is called a person after God's own heart. Abraham, the father of faith, as he's called, God said Abraham was his intimate friend. He said Noah was righteous before God. And of all the other holy men and holy women, God doesn't describe any of them as having a heart like God's heart. And it began to strike me 18 years ago, how could a youth, a mere teenager, develop a heart that is like God's, that is a reflection of God's heart? When Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father, what God is saying about David is you see David's heart, you go see the heart of God. So I began to dive into the scripture and say, okay, what is it about this youth that he became a God's man of God's own heart at such a tender young age. What did he do? How did he get there? And I began to reflect on the life of David, and that's what we're going to talk about over the next several months. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart, and then learning what, how to get to that point in life. How does that then reflect in our lives as followers, as believers of Jesus Christ, or as I say it, as disciples, because we are all called to be disciples. We're not called to be faithful Catholics. We're not called to be good people. We're called to be disciples. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the disciples a great commission to go out and baptize, (coughs) baptize all the nations. He said, make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we are all called to be disciples. So what is it about our hearts 
that God desires. Because if you begin to read scripture, you are going to find the one overriding thing that God desires most is our heart. He wants our heart. And he tells us that in many different places. And one of the clearest ones is in a Psalm by David that said, sacrifices don't please you. What you want is a contrite heart. So if you think about our hearts, our hearts, if they stop beating, life ends. So our heart is critical to our life as humans. Our heart is necessary for us to live. And I think when God is talking about our hearts, he's not talking in a physical sense. He's not talking about the anatomy. He's talking about an aspect of us that is our passion. Where is our passion? As Jesus told you and I, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So he's talking about our passion. If you think about our hearts, and just think about it for a minute, everything we do, every emotion we have, we can tie back to our heart. We talk about love, and we say, I love you with all my heart. We talk about being broken in spirit or grieving. We said, our heart aches. Our heart is full of sadness. When we talk about joy, we said, our hearts are filled with joy. If somebody gives us a kindness or shows us a kindness, we offer them our heartfelt gratitude. So everything we do begins and ends in the heart. We long for people who are separated from us. Our hearts long for you. We yearn. All of these passions are embedded in the core of our being. And I think God designed it that way. In fact, St. Augustine, in one of his famous sayings, said our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So our heart is the center of all that is passionate within us. So when God is talking about our hearts, he's talking about where is our passion? And he wants us to be a passionate people. Let me read to you one of the early things that God said to us. And if you remember when God created us, he created in this image. We know he created us to be with him at all times. We lost that with the sin of Adam. God began this plan. If you heard this for the, the last three weeks when we were together, began this plan to restore us, sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, sent the Holy Spirit to transform us, But you go back in Scripture, and let's go back to Moses. We know that Moses was called to go set the people free. We know Moses, Paul, was a reluctant prophet of God. He reluctantly obeyed God. In fact, he kept telling God, no, no, no. I cannot speak. I can't do this. Why am I going to know you with me? He was very reluctant in his service to God. But ultimately, he did what God wanted him to do, and he led the people out of, out of slavery. They reached Mount Sinai. He went up there and encountered God. They began the journey to the promised land. And they get to the promised land, and they send in scouts, one from every tribe. Twelve men went into the promised land to scout it. What is it like? Is it all God said it was? Is it a land flowing with milk and honey? And it was absolutely beautiful. There was only one problem. Of the eleven scouts... Of the 12 scouts, 11 said that they couldn't overtake the people because they were veritable giants. So he said, we can't take it. One scout, Caleb, said, God is with us, let's go in. 
And Moses acquiesced to the eleven, and he would not enter the promised land. So they get to wander in the desert for 40 years. For one day, every day they spent counting the land, they had to wander one year in the desert. So they ended up in the desert for 40 years. Now in that time, God goes to Moses, and you read this in the book of Deuteronomy. He went to Moses, and he gives Moses the 630 laws that the people were to follow. And in the beginning of giving these laws, this is what he said to Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. There you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. This one commandment to every Jew is the preeminent commandment. Everything they do is based on that one commandment of God. They call it the Baraka. And they recite it every day because the next passage after saying, you shall love me with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul, he goes on to say, take these words and drill them into your children. Drill them into your children. Wrap them around your wrist. Put them on your head as a pendant and write them on the doorposts and the lintels of your houses so that everything you do every day, you are reminded of this one command that you are to love God with all your being, your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul. So everything we do is centered on that one commandment, according to God. Do we do that? Let's still jump all the way to the back end of the Bible to Revelations, chapter 3. In chapter 3, God is speaking to the seven churches. And each one he comes to, and he says about all their good works, he tells them all the wonderful things they're doing as a church. And then he comes out and he says, but I have something against you. And he tells them what they're doing wrong. When he gets to the church of Laodicea, the seventh church, he tells them this. He said, I know your works. I know that you are neither hot nor cold. I know your works, but I know that you are neither hot nor cold. And he said, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So God is saying to us, to Laodicea and to us, that he would prefer us to be passionate about him, either for God or against God. He doesn't like us being in the middle, lukewarm, neither hot, neither cold. And there's a reason for that, because if we're not passionate then we're really not either connected with God, we're doing good things. We, he said, I know you works. you're doing good things. But since you're neither hot or cold, we're not spreading the gospel, we're not giving witness, we're not living as disciples, we're doing what the rest of society is doing, and we just are good people. But then he goes on to say this. As I said this morning, my wife told me, don't read that. Don't read that part. And I said, i got to read it i got to read this, because this makes the rest of it even more critical for us to understand. He said, You do not realize that you are blind, wretched, pitiable, and poor, and naked. Now, that's a pretty hard statement. 
You are neither hot nor cold, but you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are blind, and you're naked. He didn't have a whole lot of good things to say to Laodicea. God wants our hearts. He wants us to be passionate about Him. He wants us to be emotionally involved in everything we do with God. If you're my age, and some of you at least are in the decade of my age, there was a singer by the name of Bobby Vinton. And Bobby Vinton sang a song that said, To know you is to love you. To know you is to love you. And he repeated that phrase throughout the song, to know, know, know you is to love, love, love you. When we were together last month on the discipleship series, we talked about this word know in Scripture. And the root meaning of this word know, this, this Hebrew word called yada, appears in Genesis the first time it ever appeared in Genesis 4. And it said, Adam knew Eve, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. So when God says to us, he wants us to know him, he wants us to love him. And if we're going to get to know God, we have to have this intimate, personal relationship with God. And if you've ever been in love, and most of us have at one time or another, and if you're lucky like me, you're still in love. But your passion is involved. You don't love hot or cold or lukewarm. You either love or you don't love. Either giving yourself to your spouse in love or you're not. So here we have this, this God who is saying to us in a prophecy, and we talked about this last month, the prophecy from Jeremiah where God makes us a promise. I'm going to do this for you. And he comes to us in Jeremiah 31, and I'm going to repeat this for eternity because it is a, a most amazing prophecy in Scripture. And it's not just the only time this is said in Scripture. God says this through every prophet. He says it over and over and over again. But in Jeremiah, he comes to the people and he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with Moses because the covenant I made with Moses, they broke it. They couldn't hold to it. They couldn't comply with it. They were tempted and they failed over and over and over again. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you and I'm going to do something for you that's going to make it easy for you to follow my commandments, easy for you to follow my will, easy for you to follow all my decrees and what I require of you. And he said, what I'm going to do for you, he said, I'm going to write my law on your heart. Instead of written on tablets of stone, I'm going to write my law on your flesh, inside your core, where your passion is, I'm going to write my law. And he said, once I do that, you are going to know me. You are going to be intimate with me. You're going to desire intimacy with me. And then he goes on through the prophecy of Ezekiel, and he tells each one of us that he's going to do that by pouring his Holy Spirit into us. So here we have this promise of God that he's going to change our hearts. He's going to make them hearts that yearn for God, that desire to be with God, that yearn to be intimate with God. And it's going to be his work and not our work. So our holiness, as we talked about in the last sessions, doesn't come from us doing it ourselves. It comes from us surrendering to God. By us giving ourselves over to God's will.
And we do that through the things that we do as a people of God. We will look at David's heart to show you how this works for us and the things that we could do. When you think about David, we all know that David was in the fields tending his father's sheep. We know that. We know that because when Samuel arrived at the house of Jesse, David was not there. He was in the fields tending the sheep. Now that in itself is odd when you think about it. Jesse was a wealthy man. He had hired hands. They could have been in the fields with the sheep. So it makes you wonder, why was David in the fields in the first place? This youngest son of Jesse, why was the father taking this young man, this kid, and putting him in the fields where it's hot in the day, it's cold at night, he's exposed to the predators that want to eat the sheep and the rustlers that want to eat the sheep. And David, in his dialogue to God, talks about how he fought off bears and lions. So he was exposed to all kinds of danger. And that's where Jesse had him. And there's no answer for us in the scripture. We could come to conclusions by reading about the life of David, but there is no clear answer. So we really don't know why he was in the field. I'm guessing it was because, you know, there was another famous younger son of a very prominent patriarch. And that son's name was Joseph. Joseph was the younger son, and he was the delight of his father. And his older brothers were jealous of him. And they decided they were going to get rid of this younger son. They were going to kill him. So they take him out. They're going to kill him. Say a lion got to him, but they relented and they threw him in a cistern where he was pulled out by slave traders and he was sold into slavery into Egypt. Now we know from scripture that is exactly what saved the Israelites when the famine struck, that Joseph was in the house of Pharaoh. But he got there because of his brother's jealousy. Now I'm going to show you in later passages or later sessions when we're talking about David, what his brothers thought of him. We only know two names of two brothers, the older two, and what they say about David is not very kind. So I think we had a jealousy going on in the family, and the father decided his son was safer out in the fields, in the hills of Bethlehem, than he was at home. So that's just a guess. That is not a theological thing, so take it for what it is, but it's a guess. But what do you do when you're in the fields of Bethlehem? What do you do on these nights? Now, he didn't have an iPad. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have satellite connection. He didn't have books to read on his Kindle. He was out there alone with the sheep day and night. I believe what you do is you start talking to the only person that can listen to you. The sheep can't listen to you. They're wandering all over the place and you're constantly fighting to keep them together. I think he talked to God. I think all his communication began by simply talking to God. Now you will understand that as a young man and a Jew, there were certain requirements that they had to do. Every Jew from an early age studied the Torah. The five books, first five books of the Old Testament were studied by every young child. And according to my Jewish friend that I talked about last time, he said only the brightest go on to study the law and the prophets. I believe David was very bright. So I think David probably had the entire 
Old Testament that was available to him at the time. And he would have read them. And he would have understood from the book of Moses, Moses on the mountain, from the Exodus, that God, when he encountered Moses, told him, I am loving, I am kind, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am abounding in love and fidelity, and I forgive and I declare the guilty guiltless. And David had this image of God as loving, kind, merciful, and he began talking to this merciful God. If you read the scriptures that I ask you to read, and I encourage you to read them over the, the next period as we're getting together, 1 Samuel, beginning with chapter 16, as David's story begins. And he will continue through 1 Samuel to the end of 1 Samuel and all throughout 2 Samuel. You go into the book of Kings, the first and second chapters about David's old age. You'll find out what happened to David when he died. And if you go back into the book of Chronicles, you will find some chapters on David. But the critical ones for you to read are 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel. And if you read those, you're going to dive into David's exploits. You're going to hear his words. You're going to experience what he experienced. And it's easy for us to get caught up in the Scripture stories. But I encourage you to try to look behind the stories to see what God is trying to say to you and to me in the passages. And the other thing you should do is David in the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms, by the way. 75 of those are attributed to be written by David. And if you open your Bibles under the heading of the chapter, whether it's chapter 23, etc., it will have a number, and below that it will say a song of David. It's easy to identify which ones David wrote. They attribute them to him. Now, he wrote psalms all throughout his life. He wrote them as a youth. He wrote them as, when he was in service of Saul, and he wrote them while he was in exile. Some of the psalms will tell you exactly what was happening in David's life at the time. Other psalms will not. But if you read the Psalms, you're going to find out how David poured out his heart to God. Now, if we remember that David is a man after God's own heart, if you look at David's prayer, I'm saying David had this kind of prayer, this intimate prayer that differed from what was required of him. And what was required of him beyond learning the Torah, every Jew prayed three times a day. They prayed morning, afternoon, and evening. And every prayer was attributed to one of the patriarchs. So the, the patriarch Abraham instituted morning prayer. Afternoon prayer was instituted by his son Isaac. And evening prayer was introduced by Isaac's son Jacob. So all three of those wrote the prayers that every Jew from that day to this day recite those prayers every day. So it's like us taking a, a prayer that you read on a regular basis that is put in the hands of other Catholics, whether it's from the breviary, whether it's from a meditation uh, like the Magnificat or any other thing that you're using. It might be a divine chaplet. It could be a novena to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. But you say the same prayers over and over and over again. And you will find that David prayed that way as a youth because it was required of every Jew. In addition to that, we know that he went to the temple. Every Jew went to the temple on the Sabbath. And in the temple, they worshiped their God. They heard the readings from the scriptures and they heard a teaching. But David did something beyond that. And this is what you will see in his writings and the Psalms. He prayed from the heart. He poured out his emotions to God. 
He was involved in it. And you will see in his Psalms, he had pain, he had agony, he had doubts, he had fears, he had concerns, he had joy, he had awe, he had wonder, he had despair, he had grief, everything you can experience as a human, David experienced. And he poured all that out to God. And since he was a man after God's own heart, what he was pouring out is exactly the same thing that Jesus poured out when he went off by himself to pray. It was so starkly different from everything a Jew would pray that the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw something that was vastly different in the prayers of Jesus that they knew they didn't have. The theologians tell us that David prefigured Jesus Christ. That David in his life, the king of Israel, prefigured Jesus as the ultimate eternal king of Israel, of his people, sitting on the throne in David's line. But also, I can look at David's life and say he prefigured Jesus in his manner of prayer. That he prayed in a way that no other Jew was praying at the time. And he prayed from the heart. And I believe it was that foundation of personal, private prayer from the heart that made David a man after God's own heart. And everything David did flowed from this intimacy with God, this personal relationship where he took down the shield that we all put in front of us so that people looking at us would look at this veneer that we cover ourselves with and think highly of us. Rather than seeing the stuff that is inside of us, the pain, the agony, the doubts, the concerns, the temptations, the yielding to temptation that David just laid it all out for before God. And God is asking us to do the same thing for him. When he says, I want your hearts, what he is saying to you and me, I want you to be passionate. I want you to be passionate. And you know, as we come together as Catholics in our Mass on Sunday, we have an opportunity to be passionate. The opening hymn, the opening hymn is a communal hymn that brings us together as a community. We're there to give worship to God. Now, in that day when I grew up in the pre-Vatican II church, there were a lot of people that prayed the Mass individually. You would see people there with their rosaries during the entire Mass or sitting there with a prayer book. They prayed, and it was them and God. They didn't need the community. And Vatican II said prayer is supposed to be a communal experience where we are giving worship to God. And we have a chance in that opening hymn to join in with the community and give praise and worship to our God. Normally, the song that we open with is upbeat and is, and is focused on giving glory to God. Jesus, when he, when he responded to the disciples, when he said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, pray this way. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Awesome is your name. You are mighty God, Prince of Peace. You are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Say to God exactly who He is. He has hundreds of titles we can give to God. And what do we do when we gather? We sing. And one of the first things we do after we sing, we're not doing this right now, but one of the first things we do, we recite the Gloria. Listen to the words of the Gloria. We have an opportunity to join in and give glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth to people of goodwill. We bless you. We adore you. We glorify you. All these things we're saying we do, and we're sitting there like this. We are staying and emotionless. 
We don't engage our hearts in a prayer that we are giving God glory and honor. We don't say, you are holy, you're the holy one. We don't, we don't bring it from our hearts, we bring it from our minds and our mouths. What God wants us to do is engage ourselves fully in worship, fully in prayer, so that we take away the facade and give Him us, the real us. And He knows us. He tells us that anyway. He tells us in the Scripture, I know every thought you utter before you utter a word. I know it. And we sit there so controlled. And, and, and we get this legitimately. I know when I was growing up, if I did anything in the church, my mother and father would whap me. Be still. Be quiet. Kneel. Shut your mouth. I mean, and parents today, I have parents come to me. They say, I was so happy my child obeyed and quiet and mass today. I said, well, let them, let them holler. They look at me like I'm nuts. You know, and part of this is cultural. We, we have been taught this some sort of rules of decorum that we have to somehow comply with. The nuns always criticized me. I, I was so happy when they kicked me out of Catholic school. I, I was. By the way, I did get kicked out of Catholic school in, in, in the fifth grade. And I was so happy because the nuns never liked the way I genuflected. They said, David, you go, you go down crooked. You're supposed to go down straight. I said, I'm going straight, sister. Whap! You're not going straight. Do it better. Okay. Do it again. Whap! Whap! I mean, so we're taught that there's a certain way you've got to do things, and if we don't do it that way, people look at us like we're somehow or blaspheming whatever is going on. We don't engage, and part of this is cultural. I know that. I know many of you, when we had this sister parish in St. Catharines, a lot of people went down to St. Catharines, they were engaged in worship. I love going down there with Father Walt when he you know, finally said, Dave, I want you to start going down once a month, preach, and do this, that. It was fun. They were engaged. It was a small community. And I could be preaching, and they say, Amen, brother, amen. And you're kind of getting feedback. You stand up there now, I'm telling you, ask any priest, any deacon preach, and you look out, and you say, I wonder if they're listening. Or they're wondering what they're going to put on the table for dinner that night. I mean, you don't know where people are. We don't seem to be engaged, but all of a sudden, God is saying, I want your hearts engaged in this. And we come back after the readings and the homily, and we come back, what do we say? I believe. Are we emotionally involved in what we're saying? I believe. I do believe. We do believe. But why don't we show it? And I think part of this is cultural. You know, when we were down in Tennessee, we had a large Hispanic community in St. Thomas the Apostle Parish. And they had their own Mass on Saturday night at 7 o'clock. And guess what was happening in that Mass? It was alive. The people sang, they moved, they raised their hands, they clapped. They were all involved. And guess what the kids were doing through the entire Mass? Well, guess what the kids were doing? They weren't just sitting. They were running through the whole church. Constant. Constantly running. The adults just let the kids go. And they ran up and down the aisles. They ran in front of the sanctuary. They were running all over the church. They were laughing. They were playing with each other. And nobody paid attention to them. They were kids. They're bringing them before God and they're showing them that it's fun to come to church. It's fun to worship God. And their parents were worshiping. So let's look a minute at David. And look at him again from the Psalms. And listen to his prayers. 
David in Psalm 104 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you're awesome, you're great, you're magnificent. You've spread out yourself, you know, yourselves, you, you clothe yourselves with light as a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. This is what he's saying to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he's involved. You shall love the Lord God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul. This is the God who created the universe. And if you go out and look at a star at night, you can see the wonder of God in the heavens. And David expresses that. But again, this is this God, and you've heard me say this before, you've heard me say anything, that God created this universe by breathing a word. And it came to be, and we live in this galaxy called the Milky Way galaxy, us as a people, one star among billions in this galaxy. And the scientists tell us there's billions of galaxies out there with billions of stars in each galaxy. And the scriptures tell us, and the Psalms tell us that God holds the universe in his hand, holds the entire universe in his hand. Imagine the, the, the bigness of God. And this is the God we try to bring down to our side so we can relate to him. And we need to begin to understand how this powerful, awesome God is before us and he's inviting us to jump into his lap and call him daddy. He wants us to act like little children before him. David goes on to say in Psalm 8, he said, When I see the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would even give thought to him? We realize the insignificance of who we are in the grand scheme of God. And we realize that he's saying, I love you with an everlasting love. You are the crowning glory of my creation. And when we look at all creation, we have to wonder, what are we, God, that you've given us so much? David goes on. And he says, the heavens declare the glory of the God of God. And the firmament shows forth all his handiwork. Day to day imports this knowledge. Night to night declares this message. David just understanding the awesomeness and the power of God. But David has his moments. He says this in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you forget me? God is absent from David. He's crying out to him, and he, God seems to be somewhere else. Maybe he's sleeping, as Elijah told the prophets of Baal. Where? How can you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day to day after day have sorrow in my heart? David is aching. He needs the presence of God, and he's willing to say it. He's willing to say, where are you? God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. That is David. If you listen to him, though, he always comes back to one constant theme. Here is David aching. And he comes back to one constant theme that is his belief in the promises of God and his trust that God's going to fulfill those promises. And in that same psalm, in Psalm 12, he says this, The promises of the Lord are pure. They're silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So he's saying the promises of God will never fail. 
no matter what I'm feeling in my heart, no matter how I'm longing for God, no matter what is happening inside of me and how empty and lonely I feel, I trust in God. And that is what a person after God's heart does. As we begin to have this intimate relationship, God gave us a promise that He's going to change our heart. He gave us a promise that we are going to be intimate with Him, and He gave us a promise that He would forgive and forget our sin. And if we could just latch on to those things and hold them firm and say, this is a promise of God, this is a spiritual truth that I can stand firm on, it would change everything we do. We would begin to give God worship and prayers will turn in from prayers of petition that we all say into prayers of praise, prayers of glory, prayers of wonder, prayers of awe, prayers of despair, prayers, prayers of doubt. Psalm 92, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to his name most high. Proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness throughout the light, night. This is David. He trusted in God because he was intimate with God. Our foundation to grow as people of, after God's own heart is to begin to understand that God made us a promise. And if we could depend on that and begin to, to voice it in our prayers, intimate prayers, We'll begin to feel God. Unfortunately for most of us, the only part of David we can relate to is his temptation and his failure to resist the temptation. We can all relate to the temptations that we've never resisted, the times we have fallen, the times we have failed. And David understood that. And you know the story of David and Bathsheba. We can't hide from it. And we're going to talk in later sessions about David, why he thought or knew that he could have any woman in, in Israel. It's the right of a king. He didn't have to ask anybody's permission. He could have taken Bathsheba in his house. It was his right. Any man's wife, had children, their slaves, their flocks, their fields, every possession they ever had was the right of a king. So when David saw her bathing and he was lusting after her, rather than just take her, which he ultimately did. We know that. But he decided after he found out she was pregnant that we're going to bring Uriah back from the battlefield and let him have some R&R &R with his wife. And then when he goes back and she has a child, he'll think it's hers, his. So he brings Uriah back. But Uriah, being a warrior for God, believed that you had to be pure when you went into battle. So instead of lying with his wife, he slept outside. And nothing David could do could coax him to go inside. So as he's returning back to the battle from R and of R, David tells the generals, here's what you do with Uriah. Move him to the front of the line so he is in the heat of the battle where he's going to be killed. And he was killed. So David not only sinned with Bathsheba, he sinned by killing Uriah. And then Nathan the prophet comes to David and he tells him this wonderful story. You've heard it about this rich man who had all these flocks and this poor one guy had this little bitty lamb and this rich guy takes the lamb for his own. And David gets furious. This man should be punished. This man should be, you know, just go through the list. He should whip. He should be quartered. He should pay the price for his great sin. And Nathan says, that man is you.
That man is you. And David immediately begins to repent. And even before the words are fully out of David's mouth, Nathan says, God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you. Remember back in prophecy of Jeremiah, God said, I'm going to forgive and forget your sin. So even before David was uttering all the words, God's forgiveness had already come to David. You'll read the price that David did pay for his sin, but he was forgiven by God. And David comes back, and in one of the great psalms that we hear, Psalm 51, which we as a church call the Miserari, it is so powerful a, a, a psalm of repentance that it appears in the bravery every Friday. So the whole church says Psalm 51 on Friday. Listen to David's voice in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones you have crushed rejoice. David was repentant, and he's voicing his repentance in his words. But one thing David always does, and he comes back, as he always does. You have no delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. The sacrifice that is acceptable to you is a contrite spirit, a broken and humbled heart you will not spurn. We get back to the heart, and David giving to God this heart. What is it we desire? What do we desire from being faithful believers and Catholics, followers of Christ? Well, however you want to identify yourself, what is it we are seeking for in our journey? God wants your heart, and God has given you his own heart. David in Psalm 63 says, God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you like a dry and weary land without water. This is how David thirsts for God. Do we have that kind of passion, that kind of thirst? My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You are my chosen portion and cup, and your presence is the fullness of joy. This is what we should be doing as a people unlocking our emotions so that we begin to show it. I ask the question, why are we so staid in church, so restrained? Because we have this layer of decorum that we believe we should have. Is it proper to clap in church? Is it reasonable to express joy? You know, the only two places we can express joy when we go to church is when we're at funerals or weddings. And then somehow it's acceptable for us to cry or to clap. But I'm telling you, God wants us to be emotionally involved. And however that looks for you, you need to be emotionally involved. And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you. As a deacon, I find myself restraining myself. There are some times when I'm standing at the altar and I'm looking down at the Eucharist which God has just transformed. And I feel such a 
wonder in me that this is God in front of me, that I'm about to receive him. I want to just jump for joy. And sometimes if you look at me closely, I restrain myself. I start bouncing just a little. I'm restrained. I really want to say, oh, this is God. It's awesome. There were times in Tennessee I did a lot of communion services because our priest would be somewhere else. So instead of having a mass, I do a communion service. And I'm sitting with this host in front of me. And all of a sudden, I'm at a loss for words. I'm looking down at Christ, and I'm a loss for words. I don't know what to say, how to say it. I know the words I should be saying, but somehow they lack the emotion. Listen to what Teresa of Avila said. She said, we want to be good, and we want to do good. And she says this about being good. She said, the surest part to achieve that, and that is goodness, is our desire for the things that God wishes us to experience. A desire to achieve the things that God wishes us to experience. Whenever we think of Christ, we should recall the love that led him to bestow on us so many of the graces and favors. And also the great love of God showed us in giving us Christ as a pledge of his love. For love calls for love in return. She goes on to say, let us strive to keep this always before our eyes and to rouse ourselves up to love him. For if at some time the Lord should grant us the grace of impressing his love on our hearts, the grace to impress his love on our hearts, all will become easy for us and we shall accomplish great things quickly and without effort. That is David. That is the David you're going to experience as we go month after month. This is the David that we are looking at to see what will happen to us if we start unlocking our heart and what will we look at like in the future? How will we respond? What will people see when they look at us? And that is what we're going to look at next month when we come back together on March 11th. We're going to do this again. And we're going to look at just one aspect of what David does. So let us pray. Lord, you tell us you want our hearts. And you know that we don't give our hearts away freely. That we hold on to them by fear. Fear of being hurt. Fear of having that love rejected. Fear of somehow disappointing the person that we love. But then you give us stories like the prodigal son that says nothing we could do can disappoint you. You give a story like the woman at the well and show us that nothing we want to do or how we try to avoid you, that you will continue to break through to us and offer us the one thing we need, and that is you. So help us open our hearts to receive you and the will to respond. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.